You're listening to We Resolve to Win, the podcast for women who have resolved by women who seek to resolve conflict in their personal and professional lives and desire to negotiate no matter what. I'm your host, Elizabeth Goh, a lawyer, conflict resolution expert, and negotiation coach dedicated to helping women resolve conflict at work, strengthen their relationships, and negotiate with confidence. Ladies, let's go and be great. Hey, you guys, it's Elizabeth Go with the We Resolve to Win podcast. I know what you're thinking. Where have you been, Liz? Where have you been? Well, to be honest with you, I have been managing so much. If you recall, I released an episode not too long ago. I believe it was two or three episodes back about just my experience as a black woman in the United States. I then had an opportunity to share that blog post that I shared with you guys on the air. That blog post had in that blog post went viral at my current nine to five. And as a result of that, there have been many action steps that I have been involved with in this company in order to ensure that we are doing everything that we can do to particularly be anti-racist. And I know that means a lot of different things to a lot of people, but in reality, the truth of the matter is, is that I have been busy in a very, very good way. But before we get into the introduction of this amazing interview with Kathy Heller, if you don't know who Kathy Heller is, Google her, Google her, Google her. She's amazing. But before I introduce her, I wanted to remind you guys of something that I always remind you. Please check us out on Instagram at weresolvetowin.com. Take a screen grab. Let me know that you're listening. And if you are so inclined, please sign up for the email alerts. So I wanted to talk to you guys about preserving your peace and protecting your energy when there are people around you that have intentions to bring you down. I was faced with a situation, unfortunately, where an individual found himself really trying to denigrate me, trying to um, distract me. And to be honest with you, he was successful. I found myself not necessarily going tit for tat with this gentleman, but rather I found myself needing to respond in the first instance. And as a result of that, it just drained me so much because he was so negative. And in me responding to his negativity, I just found myself so exhausted. And I wanted to just talk to you guys that it's so important that you preserve your peace, particularly in this season. This season can be a season of growth for you. This season can be a season of reckoning in a positive way, things that you've been wanting for a long time, things that you've been striving for, things that you feel like you have not been successful in. This could be the time, while we are still managing a global crisis through the pandemic, for you to be aligned with certain individuals, for you to have doors swung open for you, which would be an absolute amazing thing. I know that's the case for me. And while we are transitioning and going through this together, it is so important and it's so vital that we are intentional about preserving our peace. So one thing that I'm doing to preserve my peace is to simply disengaging. 
disengaging, intentionally disengaging with individuals that seek to harm me, that seek to bring me down, that do not have any of good intentions towards me. I am purposefully being intentional about it because again, sometimes we have a tendency to get wrapped up in certain situations. So I just want to encourage you to be mindful of your energy, be mindful of your peace, protect your peace, protect your energy and do everything in your power to ensure that you are aligned with your purpose in life, that you are aligned with where you are supposed to be and you are aligned with where you are supposed to go. This could be the season for that and you wanna make sure that you are paying attention, you wanna make sure that you are wise and you wanna make sure that you are discerning in your actions. So I just wanted to just talk about that quickly before talking about Kathy Heller. Now, you're gonna hear Kathy introduce herself in this podcast. This episode was actually recorded, I wanna say, at the end of March, early April, so quite some time ago. I've been holding on to it, and as I mentioned, there are a lot of different things that I've been managing, but Kathy is an amazing person. She is inspirational. She has a natural gift of writing. She has the ability to really inspire people to make a change in their lives as they are sorting out what their purpose is and as they are walking through their purpose. The fact that I had a chance to chat with her and interview her is amazing. And the way that happened is because she posted something on Instagram. I follow her on Instagram. I Again, I think she's amazing. I fangirl her all the time. I'm super, super, super fangirling her. And she talked about what is your dream. And I said, my dream is to interview you for my podcast. And a couple of hours after that, she sent me a private message through my DM. She slid through my DM. And she basically said, I would love to be on your podcast. Let me know what day works. Here's an email address. Let's get it started. And I started sweating. I screamed. And I was just like, oh, my God, Kathy Heller. Oh, my God, I'm going to interview Kathy Heller. I immediately told lots of close friends and family members. And I'm just so thankful for the opportunity to just align with her, even in this podcast episode, because it just reminds me that when we have good intentions and we gives us the ability and, and we take action, very important, we take action, it gives us the ability to see our dreams realized. So with that being said, I am going to let this episode roll out into its amazingness. And I hope, I really, really, really hope that this episode blesses you in an amazing way because it surely blessed me chatting with her and I look forward to replaying this over and over and over and even telling my grandkids, you know what? Grandma was super brave one time. She flexed her courage muscle and she had an opportunity to interview the amazing Kathy Heller. I am so excited to let you guys know that I have an amazing guest. I'm literally bubbling right now, bubbling. An amazing guest by the name of Kathy Heller. You may know her as the host of Don't Keep Your Day Job. She has a brilliant platform, a brilliant book, a brilliant podcast. I learned about her about two years ago, and I've been obsessed since. I've been standing you, which means stalker fan. I've been your stalker fan <laughs> for the past two years plus, and I'm just so thankful that you're here, and I would love for you to introduce yourself. Kathy? First of all, you are so gorgeous and so sweet, 
And I'm so happy that we got to meet. And right before we hit record, Elizabeth and I realized that we both went to the same university and we were just having the sweetest like connection. And we were like, do you remember this dorm? Do you remember this restaurant? Wasn't this so sweet? And I love, you know, how those feelings feel, make you feel so good. So um, everything you just said was so kind. And yeah, my name is Kathy and I have three little girls and my husband and I, um, we live in Los Angeles and we're thinking about going somewhere else. We've been here for 17 years. Um, I moved out here when I was 24. Um, I was looking to, to be a rock star. I grew up wanting to be a rock star. And um, I came out here, I wrote mediocre songs. My songs got a little better. I got a day job. I lived with a roommate. She was a waitress. I was a you know, so struggling songwriter. And eventually I got a um, record deal. And then I got dropped from the record label. And it was, it was hard. And then uh, I got a bunch of day jobs. And I was like, you know what? I can't do this. I can't like wear a pantsuit and go to work. Like I have this thing inside of me that wants to be born and okay. So it didn't work out in the record world, but is there any other way? Is there any other way that I could do what I love? And I asked that million dollar question. Is there any other way? I think sometimes we have this life, we have like a paradigm, we're, we're in some kind of a system and we're like, well, this is the system. This is what my parents did. This is what the people around me do. But just because everybody smokes cigarettes, do you have to? No. Just because everybody works nine to five in a, in a soul sucking job, do you have to? No. Like there's so many things that make up what you can do with your life. And I said, you know what? I can't do this anymore. Like I'm going to find a way to do something that I love. And I looked for like, where's the intersection of what I love doing that I could get paid to do other than working for someone else and just being paid to sit at a desk and you know wear pantsuits. So um, I wound up figuring it out. And I wound up, long story short, I wound up figuring out how to make seven figures, multi-seven figures a year doing things I love that don't feel like work. And, uh, and today I teach people how to do that. I teach people how to find their calling, turn their passion into their profit, and I've been doing this now for so long and, and I've gotten to just meet so many amazing people. And my podcast, which is called Don't Keep Your Day Job, um, has now about 15 million downloads. We started three years ago with zero, no email list, no nothing. Um, but I've created a whole world around it and, uh, and it's been such a blessing. And I love that I can help people see a new possibility and give people tangible tools to make really good money being paid to be themselves. That, that is my mission. So that's what I do. Okay. So let's go back to when you were dropped from the record label. I'm curious, why is it that you did not return back home? A lot of people would have experienced a disappointment like that, especially since you, you moved from the East Coast to the West Coast, you uprooted your life, and this is something that you were passionate about. You've always wanted to do it. You finally got to what you thought your dream was, and then you got dropped. Why is it that you didn't just say, well, I gave it my best try, it didn't work out, back to the States we go, or back to the Florida we go. So why is it that you, you decided to stick it out or to even stay geographically in California? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. No one's ever asked me that question. It's a good question. It's because I didn't want to go home. I wanted to be as far away from home as possible. My parents had a, a horrible marriage. It was very violent, a lot of abuse, uh, very scary. I used to like shake when I would hear the door open and my dad was like coming home at the end of the day. It was horrible. And thank God they got divorced. Uh, when they got divorced, it went from bad to worse. Uh, my mom suffered from sort of like the worst 
uh, manic um, depression I had ever seen up close and tried to take her own life a few times. My dad really left like for real, moved in with this woman he was having an affair with and never really looked back. So it was really like very, very hard to make it through all of that. Just like as a kid to be completely sort of like abandoned in that way, there was just so much pain. So the last thing I wanted to do was go home. And also I think because my mom suffered from depression and it was so close to to my, I saw it so up close, it was like a cautionary tale. I did not want that to be me. And so I got dropped from Interscope and then I went and got a day job. But I remember like a year and a half in, I was, and I was actually making decent money at the day job. I was working for a guy in Brentwood who bought commercial real estate shopping centers and they would be like 200, $300 million shopping centers. And he would hire me to basically go with him on meetings and like schmooze with people, talk to people, grease the wheels of people. And he paid me like $120,000. So I was like, oh, but then after a year and a half, I thought, I didn't come out here to make enough money to eat spicy tuna rolls and wear cute jeans. By the way, $120,000 was amazing money for a 25-year-old, but it's not like it's the most amazing money in the world. But for me, it felt like a ton of money, but I was unfulfilled. And success without fulfillment feels like the ultimate failure because you're like, okay, I guess I can go to a restaurant. I guess I can buy whatever cute car but I don't feel happy. So what do I really have? And I would like think about my mom and I was like, I can't afford, I cannot afford to just coast. Like I have to do something powerful with my life. And so I decided to make it my mission to find a way to do something that I loved and to make money doing what felt like me. And so just to sort of like do the big reveal, cause it's like, it's not such a secret. Um, what I wound up doing was asking myself, is there any other way that a songwriter makes a living besides being a rock star? Because I think I thought it was either Beyonce or bust. It's either you're Taylor Swift or you're nothing. And so I started to Google that. How else do songwriters make a living? And people were talking about touring, people were talking about merch. And then there were this, there were these articles about licensing your songs to Grey's Anatomy, licensing your songs to to Coca-Cola commercials. And I said, what's a license? What does that mean? Oh, you give someone the right to use your song. Oh, you get paid 50 grand per ad. Oh, you make $11,000 of your songs in a TV show. Interesting. I never thought about that. So I started to say, what if I focused all my energy on that? And I started to ask questions. Who would I need to meet? What would they need from me? And that, Elizabeth, that's where everything changed because I realized that the difference between a hobby and a business is that somebody else needs something from you that they're going to pay you for. A hobby means like, I'm doing my thing. I like to make candles. I like to paint. I like to journal. That's about me. A business by definition means someone else is paying me. That means someone else is taking their hard-earned value and trading it for value that they think I'm giving them, a service, a product, something they want or need. So I started asking that question, which is, I would reach out to people at Lionsgate, Paramount, NBC, different ad agencies, Coca-Cola, Walmart. What kinds of stories are you telling? What kind of music do you need? And people would say, that is the most refreshing question. Instead of you just like pitching us what you have and saying, can you fit your world into my world? You're saying, what do you need? Which I'll tell you what I need. I've got songwriters left and right sending me music about breakups. I'm not doing an ad for Target with a breakup song in it. I need a song about like, this is the best moment ever. I need a song about this is the spring and it feels so good to be alive. I need a song about let's go home. Let's buy a Subaru. Let's go home. And I thought, 
I want to be up for that challenge. I want to write those kinds of songs. And so I started to go with what they needed to the studio. Most songwriters were looking at me like, why would you do that? You're, you're selling out. Why would you care what other people need from you? Because that's a business. And the last time I checked, Michelangelo was commissioned to paint the Sistine Chapel. He was told what to paint, where to paint it, and when to paint it. Last time I checked, Randy Newman was commissioned to do all the work for the music for Toy Story. Last time I checked, Mozart was commissioned to create those symphonies. Artists and any human being, whether it's Bill Gates or the guy that works at the coffee shop downtown or the person who makes the, the scenery for whatever, any person who's in any business, the mugs you're drinking out of, the business revolves around the person that is consuming the thing. And so you should care, right? When Sarah Bareilles wrote the most amazing music to the Broadway show Waitress last two years ago, which is incredible, that story is about a woman who was abused by her husband. That story is about a woman who has a baby. She, thank God, has not been abused by her husband. She doesn't have a baby. She wrote those songs. They're gorgeous. She wasn't able to put herself in those shoes and write music and use her gift, her artistry to tell that story. Of course she could. She had a million meetings about it. So I got it, Elizabeth. I realized I am here to show up and ask you what you need and then figure out a way to make it my imprint. And so I would write these songs, Let Your Colors Shine, Count On Me, uh, We Will March On, Heart of a Hero. I wrote these songs that told these universal stories and, you, and yes, it worked. I started to make $200,000, $300,000 every single year. I would do like eight ads, 14 TV shows, trailers, and what's sitting behind me in my office are articles from... Variety, Billboard, the LA Weekly, people would write these full page stories about this girl, Kathy Heller, who was making all this money. And I kept being asked to be in these articles, cover the USA Today music section. And I would be like, why is this newsworthy? Because no one's doing this, Kath. Because artists are sitting there with a blanket of excuses, licking their wounds and saying, I'm a starving artist. That's the way it is. The industry's dead. And here you are being resourceful, making relationships, talking to people and making a living, having fun and doing what you love. So what wound up happening was I did that for a decade and then other artists read these articles and other artists heard me speak on panels and other artists would hear about me through the grapevine and they would say, hey, can you help me? Can you teach me how you pitch? Can you teach me how you know what they know? How do you anticipate their needs so well? How do you write the music over and over? You know, if somebody is successful once, you could say they got lucky. But if someone is successful over and over and over and over and over and over again with their podcast, with their course, with their whatever business, with whatever they're doing, with their marriage, with their child rearing, if they're successful over and over again, there's a strategy at play. They understand something about what's going on. It's not luck, right? There's something going on. So success leaves clues. So people ask me if I could help them. And then I thought, why can't I help them? Maybe I should help them. So I started an agency pitching other people's music as well as my own. When I would reach out to these people, I would also pitch other people's music. And then I realized so many artists needed help. So I started a course four years ago called Six Figure Songwriting. I didn't know the first thing about the online world. And I thought, it's just the next thing. You know, sometimes you feel a tug and you don't know why and you just trust it. Like, this just seems like the next thing to do. I have that every day in my business, like the next little tug. So I broke my teeth learning a whole new language, created a class. I was pregnant with my daughter um, and I created this first webinar and I didn't know what I was doing. And at the end of the webinar, I made an invitation that people could work with me in this program called Six Figure Songwriting, which would help them get the results that I got and tell them what I did. 
And I made $147,000 that day. And I was like, oh my God, like I used to, you know, I was making two, $300,000 a year, writing music, making relationships, having this, you know, which was great. But here it was like one day. Then I launched the class six months later, we made $440,000. Then I launched the class again, we made a million dollars. And I was like, wow, for everything you do, there will be a line of people around the block who want to know how you do what you do. That was amazing. Then I started the podcast. Then I created all these other courses to help all kinds of human beings figure out what did I do with my music business that would be applicable to any person's business? What kinds of strategies did I have to send emails, to create the right products, to know my audience, to create my customer relationship? And I realized I applied that same thing to growing my podcast because again, my podcast went from zero to 15 million downloads in three years. Then I got a book deal and I realized my courses, same thing. How did I grow the audience? How did I connect? How did I sell the course? Now I have all these other courses where I teach people how to launch, how to do six and seven figure challenges, all these things that I now know how to do. I teach that now. So whatever I learn, I realize I like to teach people what I just did. It's really fun. Okay. So I want to go back a little bit. One of the things that you said was that you had a moment uh, many people who know Oprah would say it was an aha moment, but you had a moment. How did you have that moment? What inspired you to keep going despite the rejection that you experienced? And I know we often hear about fear. We hear concerns that people have, but do you think that in you thinking about your past, do you think that some people struggle with laziness? Do you think that some people struggle with creating excuses because of fear? Or do you think that, that in your particular situation, while you had that tug, while you had something that inspired you, you kept going regardless of what everything or the world looked like around you? What, what are your thoughts there? I don't think that people are lazy. I often feel like when people have a business problem or a marketing problem, they have a courage problem. I think that every single one of us by the age of eight, like if you're listening right now, just raise your hand if by the age of eight you had your heart broken. Raise your hand if by the age of 12 you experienced some pretty devastating stuff. So what I think happens is as human beings, we're very, very smart and we create survival strategies. And the strategy goes like this. I don't want to be in pain, so I'm going to protect myself. And last time I dreamed too far, I was, you know, really ashamed because somebody humiliated me or I got rejected. Last time I loved too deeply, my heart got broken. So I won't love too much. I won't dream too far. And we tell ourselves I'm fine or I don't really want it. Or we tell ourselves all the reason why we shouldn't go down that road because we compare ourselves to other people. You'll make a fool of yourself. How could you do that? You'll fail. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's a protection because we don't want to be in pain. I think what I realize is, first of all, my whole childhood, I was uncomfortable. So I wasn't a stranger to being uncomfortable. And um, I knew that I could handle being uncomfortable. And so I learned to tolerate doing it scared. 
I was scared. I was anxious. I felt like an imposter. I felt nervous making those first cold calls to Lionsgate and Paramount. Hi, who's the person choosing music? Hanging up on me, calling back, having to ask it a different way, sending those first emails, getting rejected, writing those first songs. They were mediocre. No, we don't want songs. No, don't email me. Having to figure out what I was doing, how to do it. Um, I, I was scared, but I used to think to myself when my hand would shake and I was calling like Target to try to figure out who on earth what I would even talk to about music, I would think, am I going to let this fear stop me from what's on the other side, which is my entire life? Because the, the truth is you either have the courage to sell and do your thing or you will work for someone else who does. You will work for someone else who has the courage. Or you'll marry rich, right? But if you're not going to marry rich, you're either working for someone else who's like, I'll have the courage to sell this crappy thing and you should, you should work for me, or you go serve the world. And I think that what I learned about happiness from watching my mom in her depression is that the opposite of depression is not actually happiness. It's not feeling great and it's not happiness. The opposite of depression is a sense of purpose. So I realized that what we really want is to be contributing. What we really want as human beings is to grow. We don't want to be in our comfort zone. That doesn't make us happy. When you see people who check the boxes, they have the right house, the right car, the right this, doesn't necessarily change their happiness quotient. But when we break through our upper limit, when we do the things that scare us, when we show ourselves that we can do hard things, and when we're growing, oh, it's such a rush. It's what really, that really is the reward. I think we have to change the way we look at failure. Failure isn't they didn't like the podcast. Failure isn't they rejected it. My screenplay got rejected. Failure is I didn't do it. Because the success is I just made the choice. I make the choice and then let the universe, let God, let synchronicity worry about what's going to happen from there. But the cost of admission to success is the courage to do it. And courage is not absence of fear. Courage is not, oh, see, I'm courageous. I'm not scared. No, courage is I am scared and I have the courage to move in to battle, even though I'm scared. And fortune favors the brave. It's like any movie you've ever seen, Rocky, Moana, Frozen. I have three little girls, so I think of these movies. But you know, here she is standing on the shore, looking out at the horizon and everyone's saying, don't go in there. You won't make it. And she's like, okay. And the horizon keeps calling her. And she knows she's got to go. And the hero's journey of any movie you've ever seen, Devil Wears Prada, pick any movie, any movie, is that this person, they know what they have to do. They know what they have to say. They know who they need to be. And they're hitting that resistance. And the end of the movie is them breaking through their own resistance to just say what they need to say or be what they need to be or do the thing they need to do. And that's what we all look at in other people. And we go, that's, that's what I want for myself, right? So that's why I have done what I've done because I know what the going back looks like. And that's much worse than the comfort zone. So on your podcast and in your book, you've shared that you went through a journey and that you spent time in Israel and you kind of went through to to research and study and, and discover so many different components of, of individuals and the life of Israel. So I'm curious, 
what do you think your personal faith or your personal ideology, what role has that played as far as you sorting out your purpose? And do you think purpose is seasonal? Do you think that someone can be in their season right now where they're living their purpose and their passion and suddenly there's a shift depending on what happens in their life, a shift when they become a mom, a shift when they become uh, a wife, a partner. Do you think that someone's purpose stems with them and stays with them their whole entire lives? Or do you think it's seasonal? It's a really good question. I think that we get obsessed with this question of like, what is my existential purpose in life? And I think that it can paralyze us. I think the real question is, how can I be of use? I think our purpose is I want to contribute. I want to feel seen. I want to know that I left this world better than it was, which means that is always the purpose. How that looks is going to change based on how you are needed. And it's kind of like the game of like hotter, colder, warmer. You will keep being led to how you can serve more, deeper, better. I look at it like, you know, when I went to Israel, I grew up really secular. I'm Jewish, but I didn't know anything about God. I just was very secular. I went to Israel on like a whim. I was supposed to be there for two weeks. I wound up staying for two and a half years and I fell in love with God and I fell in love with my connection to the creator of the universe. And what I learned, which is a very uh, prominent Jewish teaching, is that every single human being is a masterpiece, is a piece of the master, every single one of us, which is why every human being has a different fingerprint. No one ever did. No one ever will have that fingerprint because you add something that only you can add. And God needs you or else he wouldn't have made you. There are no extras. He doesn't just make extra just to have extra. Every person is needed. It's kind of like when I'm playing a jigsaw puzzle with my kids and we're sitting on the floor and then we get to the end and we're missing a piece. It is the most annoying feeling. You look at the picture, you're like, where's that picture? Where's that one part of the owl's, you know, ear? Well, how come we don't have this part of the bottom of the ocean? Oh, well, it doesn't matter which piece you are. If you're not there, it's not whole. It's not complete. So your piece is how you show up, how you are needed. And that's really what we want. We want to be needed. We want to contribute. So it's going to shift in terms of the how, but the essence of it won't shift. You'll realize that the ways in which you do serve, there will be a through line. Like I was always the kid in my home trying to be the peacemaker for my parents, trying to be their therapist, trying to help them, trying to be their cheerleader. I do that now. We talked earlier about how when I was in college, I was editor of my college paper. I felt a call to inspire people on campus. I had something to say. I wanted to be holding up a torch for people to like see the light in the darkness. I always wanted to say those kinds of things, to uplift, to bring people together. It's all changed in terms of the how, but even my songwriting was like that. My music was like that. The songs that I felt drawn to share, those were the stories I was telling. So the medium changes, but the purpose is always very much in alignment with who you are and what your piece of the puzzle is. Okay, so what about, when I, when I think about your story, it's inspirational because you are someone who you were able to get out of the situation that you grew up in. What if there's someone that 
is still there? What if someone, they grew up, they went off to college, they went back home, and they are now experiencing uh, a cycle, uh, a repeat of their own parents' life, their mother's life, and they're living out their, their mother's lives. What would you say to that person? Or alternatively, if you had an opportunity to go back in the past and be Kathy today or be another individual and spoke to and, and had a chance to speak to your mother to say um, some words of inspiration, what would you say to that person? What would you say to your mother to help her understand the importance of purpose? Um, well, you asked two really good questions. Which one do you want me to answer? You go for it. I don't know. <laughs> you go for it. Um, it sounds like you're, well, the first question you asked is, uh, it's hard for me to actually even remember because the second question was also in, involved. You, you, the, the second question you just asked was, what would I go back to tell my mom um, about purpose? Oh, I remember. The first question you asked is, what if somebody is reliving what they what their parents went through. Right. What they saw growing up. Yeah. So which one do you want me to answer? Um, what would you say to your mother if you could go back as Kathy, as an adult, or as someone else, if you think the message from Kathy wouldn't be received as well? What would, what would you say to her? Um, I would say your gifts are dying inside of you. And the reason you're sad is because you are you're tolerating when, when, whatever we have, we're tolerating, right? Whatever, whatever we're not changing, we're choosing. So the lives that usually make us miserable, we want to blame on our circumstances. We want to blame on our partner. We are co-creating that because we're tolerating it. There are people you could think of right now who would never tolerate living paycheck to paycheck. So they're going to have to make a different choice. There are people you, you know who would never tolerate um, being treated a certain way. So they just, they're going to call in the kinds of relationships where there's a different, they're going to raise the standard, right? They're going to make it a must. So my mom tolerated so much and it goes back to, she didn't think she was worth more, right? We tolerate whatever we believe we deserve. So we have to work on that. We have to look at where that gets stuck and we have to do that work. And it all really comes down to inner child work. You know, there must be a seven-year-old inside of all of us that's inside sort of like running the show and making all of the choices. And it really goes back to beliefs about ourselves, beliefs about the world, beliefs about what's what. I mean, she might've had a belief that marriage was supposed to be miserable so it's fine. She might've had a belief that you're not allowed to grow up and have your dreams come true because that's only for lucky people. So she didn't. So she just created a world in which there was no other choice. And then she wasn't happy. She wasn't doing the things she loved. She gave up her dreams to be a mother and didn't find a way to do both. She tolerated. So I would say, you know, you're allowing yourself to be stuck here when there you have, it's kind of like looking at a bird who's in a cage, but the door is open. It's like, you could fly out, but you've, you know, created this paradigm. So we have to go back and we have to change that. Okay. How about to future wise, when we think about your children, cause you have three girls and you apparently watch a lot of Disney movies yes, <laughs> as yeah. I do with my daughter, which is amazing. 
how do you build courage in your daughters? How do you teach them courage? Because it sounds like there's no lack in you. And even when you are concerned about something, you keep going, which is, which is brilliant. So for the little girls literally in your home, how are you teaching them to be courageous? I mean, a couple of things. First of all, that's a gorgeous question. Um, two things. One is I'm showing them what I'm doing, right? Like I tell them all the time, mommy's going to go speak in front of 2000 people and it's scary, but I'm going to go do it. And then I tell them when I get off of a, a podcast or when I'm finishing writing my book, I love what I do, you guys. I love it. And it's hard, but it's interesting. And I'm doing stuff. I love mommy's so happy with her job. Look what you can do. You can make seven figures and you can be a parent and you can do this and you can do that. I love what I do. So I think showing them because for kids, it's not what's taught. It's what's caught. So you best believe that it's not what you tell them. It's what you do. And so the best thing I can do for my kids is to show up and do my work. I also work on my marriage and it's hard and it's not always easy. And in December, I went for a week by myself on a retreat couldn't believe I did that. Uh, went to Nashville. You have to give up your phone. You're there for a week and you're working on yourself. It's therapy. You're literally in therapy for a week. My husband also went separately. And I think showing them that, like showing them, you know, I'm going to do this work on myself. And of course, I don't tell them about my issues or my triggers or how my husband and I, we don't do that. But we, I let them know that I'm not a stranger to working on things. So that's one step. So I said, it's two things. One is how I, how I live, I think is really important. And I do have those conversations where like my husband comes from a family where like, don't talk about money because it's like, you know, people will be jealous of you or it makes you seem materialistic. It's the opposite for me. I'm like, no, 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 no. I want to take the ego out of the money and make it feel abundant and accessible and that that's what you get for having empathy and building a business that really serves other people. So I do tell them this house was $4 million. Mommy's new car. Mommy just bought her new BMW by herself. Daddy didn't have to come. Mommy Go bought ahead, that. Kathy. Go ahead. Yes. Seriously. And like mommy pays the bills. My husband doesn't work. Mommy, mommy is able to buy a $3 million house. Mommy likes to do it. Mommy and money's awesome. But what do we use the money for? We're the ones they see me. I walk up to the principal of their school saying, can I host the thing at our house? I host the speakers. I want to host the rabbi, the priest giving the classes in our house. I want to do that. I want to create every year. We have a Thanksgiving meal. We invite 65 people, whoever doesn't have a meal. Like I want them to see this house is a gift. We are a custodian of this house. We get to decide what we do with this money is a gift. It's like oxygen. It's a resource. So I share with them that don't be afraid of money. That's money is just like, it's just like love or electricity. Why would you be afraid of electricity? You need more of electricity to have more lights on. Lights are good, right? It's all beautiful. So we talk about that stuff. Um, we also talk about how important it is to not have too much. When they get something, it's like, well, let's give other stuff away or let's think about this homeless person that like really needs that. So I try to do that. Also with them, I'm constantly telling them, just put in the effort and have fun. What do I want you to do at school? I don't want you to get, I don't need you to get an A on your test. I don't need that. That's not a priority for me. I want you to be invested. I want you to have fun. In fact, my daughter, she goes to a school that's a progressive school. So they do gardening. They work on a loom. They don't have grades. I made that choice. I was like, I don't want you sitting at a desk regurgitating information. That's not going to help you. I want you to be an entrepreneur. In fact, I'm thinking about homeschooling them because 
I'd rather have her starting a blog or making videos on TikTok or thinking about how she can help do a, she's making uh, bracelets to sell to neighbors. That's what I'd rather have her be doing because it is courageous. Like let's take action. So there's so many ways that I try to do that, but it's in everything. I mean, it's in everything I do. And I'm sure, I'm certain that there are 15 things I'll do that they'll go, that wasn't good. You should have done this better. And they'll have their own reasons to feel like, you know, what we had wasn't great. But I feel like it's a huge improvement from what I had and what my husband had. Okay. So you are, in my eyes, wildly successful, wildly successful. And I think that when people think about you, that they think of this empire and the fact that you and I were able to connect being originally from Florida, things of that nature. I wonder, because I've heard people say often that they're concerned that they're going to be successful and it's going to ruin some of their friendships or the connection with their family because they have that commonality of poverty, commonality of brokenness, et cetera. So I'm wondering with your success and your continued success, has that impacted how you do life with your family, with your ancillary family outside of California? Do you have cousins or siblings or individuals that may feel uncomfortable around you? Do you find that you have to have a number of courageous conversations so that you can reshape or reframe how they see you? What, what are your thoughts there? Oh yeah, I mean, th that's such an interesting conversation because my parents had a crappy marriage and we had no money. So emotionally, there was no like, leave it to Beaver, let's sit down for dinner. Well, you know, my mom's on the PTA, none of that. And then we lived in a little apartment and Florida is already not so expensive, right? So when you're living in an apartment in Florida that you're renting, you're not doing well because you could buy a house for $150,000 today in 2020. So in 1990, you know, if you're living in an apartment that you're renting um, off of 441, which you know these places, like you're not doing great. That's how we lived. So I live very differently now. And I always had that sort of wealth consciousness. I don't even know what it means. I'm going to try to break it down. I'm not a person who listened to the secret. I don't know any of that stuff, right? I'm not a person who went to some money boot camp or all I knew was that I saw people who had very little and I would think to myself, why they could have more. Like it just seemed like it's right there. And then I also realized that the way that you have more is you just decide I'm worth it. <laughs> and then you do. And I saw that all the time. And it's interesting um, because when I worked for that guy in the commercial real estate world, he, I met him online at the Cheesecake Factory and he was like, you have a great personality. You should come work for me. I'm like, what do you do? He's like, I, I, I buy and sell commercial real estate. I'm like, I don't know anything about that. He said, just come work for me. You have a good personality. I'll, I'll put you to work. You'll see. Okay, go work for him. And I did a good job. I would make these phone calls for him, set up meetings for him, get people excited to sort of hear his pitch about what properties he was selling. Anyway, he asked me at the end of year one if I wanted a raise and what I would want. And I told him, I was so nervous. And I said, I would love you to give me $75,000. And he said, okay. 
I was 25 years old. I'm like, oh my God, $75,000 plus this little piece of commission he'd give me on every deal, which was like 120 grand. It was amazing. I leave the office and this guy, Ryan, is sitting next to me and Ryan says, how did it go? I said, it was great. He said, did he say yes? I said, yep. He said, he said yes to me too. Did you ask for $150,000? And I said, no, I asked for 75 plus the commission. He said, oh, I asked for 150 plus commission. And he said, yes. I said, wait, what? I've been here longer than you. And he likes me better. Hang on. So I go back into his office and I say to him, did you give Ryan double what you were giving me? And he said, yes. And I said, why? And he said, because he asked me for it. And I said, well, I want more. And he said, here's the difference, Kath. He walked in, this is what I want. And when he said, this is what I want, he told me this is what I'm worth. And I believed him. When you walk into those sales calls, when you're on the phone, that is actually the exchange of energy. So when you're there, I'm happy to give you that raise. And I was like, this is crazy, right? And a few months later, I kind of just broke through that ceiling. It's fascinating. Oprah has done so many episodes where she has women write down so that only the audience, they turn around the audience can see like what they write. How much money would you want to make? Women will say this. If I could just make a hundred thousand, they'll put the word just. If I could just make 75,000, just, there's an apology there. What you will notice is when you break through that ceiling of like, I am worth it. The world will go, yeah, you are like mirror energies. You walk in a room, you'll see this next time you're in a room, watch how people walk in. And within four seconds, you can tell this person, this person values themselves. They won't take crap from everybody. This person doesn't value themselves. This person believes in what they're saying. We've done studies in the human being and we've found that enthusiasm lights up in the brain stronger than anything else. If you're having a conversation with someone and you're all in, you're passionate, you're enthusiastic, you are committed to what you're saying, even if you're wrong, you will win that, that, that conversation because of the enthusiasm. The other person will go to your side. So it is the frequency in which we live. And I think I just had this understanding of like, we're all worth it. And I started realizing that I felt as though when I came back from Israel, I felt as though God had this huge buffet table out where there was chocolate and carving stations and sushi rolls and, and desserts. And I would watch people go up to this metaphorical buffet table and take a little crumb and go over and sit in the corner. And it's like, he's putting it all out here. Just come and enjoy it. There's all this shame. Who am I to enjoy it? Maybe I'm really, it's like, we, we, we walk up with a thimble and it's like, thank you. Walk up with a bucket. Successful people see abundance and opportunity everywhere. And then they just go catch it and it's fun and they're having a good time and they step into it. They, it's like spiritual chin-ups. And so where I, you know, you asked me, how have you had to like have interesting, courageous conversations? I think what I have had to do is show people like, this is nothing to be negative about. And please don't confuse my having money with me being materialistic. Cause you're not going to get that either. Cause I'm not. Money and human beings is like a garden, okay? If you're a weed and the rain falls, more weeds will grow. If you are a rose and the rain falls, more roses will grow. Money will exaggerate whatever you inherently really are. So when you're a good person, you look around the world, you'll see hospitals now. There's a name on the bottom of the building. Somebody cares. You'll look at people like Oprah, you mentioned before, right? 
she donates a lot of that money. She is the custodian of that money, right? When you are wealthy, you have the ability to just do more, right? So it's not a, and it's not a, it's not a mutually exclusive thing. It's not either I'm poor and I'm nice or I'm rich and I'm a jerk. There are poor people who are not nice. There are poor people who are really kind. There are rich people who are jerks and there are rich people who are really generous. Bill Gates is right now giving billions of dollars to help fight this virus. He is one of the most generous people who's ever lived and he happens to be one of the richest people in all of history. So is Warren Buffett, really generous, right? So it's not one or the other. And yeah, I've had to, I think my family looks around and they're like, oh my God, how is she able to make all this money? I could talk forever about the money piece because it really, your net worth has so much to do with your self-worth. And when I see people making a lot of money, I think this person has a tremendous amount of empathy because business is intimacy. Business is relationships. Business is listening, serving, really knowing your customer. If you're successful, like I said before, over and over and over and over and over again, you figured out who your audience is and what they need. And so really making money means I was courageous enough to raise my hand, put myself in the world, figure out what people need and serve them. Oh my God. Okay. That was amazing. That was brilliant. That was more than I bargained for. <laughs> Way more than I bargained for. And um, I want to respect your time. And so Kathy, how can people, I, I, I really will want to be with you for the next eight days talking about all the things that you've unfolded, but I know that you have so many different episodes on your podcast and I know that people will absolutely love your book and love what you have to offer and how you are serving the world. And I know that the first chapter is also available on one of your episodes, which I think is so generous and so great. And it's such a good chapter. Let me say it's such a good chapter. Thank you. So Kathy, how can people get in contact with you? Yes. Well, you can come find me on Instagram because I am there myself personally writing back to DMs, commenting on people, posting every day at kathy.heller, Kathy's with a C. The podcast is called Don't Keep Your Day Job. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. The book is called Don't Keep Your Day Job. You can get it on Audible. You can get it wherever you want. And don't be a stranger. I'm here at my website, kathyheller.com. There's a free quiz that helps you sort of figure out what your passion project might be to find your purpose. I'm about to be very, very soon in about two weeks, I'll be doing a free five-day training where I will go live every day for five days. Um, and if you go to kathyheller.com slash newsletter and you get on the newsletter, you will be alerted to when that challenge challenge is, but that challenge will be fire. I will be teaching people my seven figure framework. How do you do six and seven figure launches? And I'm so excited about it. Thank you so much, Kathy. We Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me on this week's episode of We Resolve to Win. But don't worry, the fun doesn't stop there. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter at We Resolve to Win. And you can join our free private Facebook group where we share success stories and strategies on negotiating and resolving conflict in all areas of your life. Until next time, be well.